Our sermon this morning is from John chapter 13. Verses 21 through 38. Last time we were in John, we saw Jesus had just finished washing his disciples' feet. In the context here, he is about to celebrate the Passover with them. The Jewish feast, really a high point of the year. It's also the time when he is about to establish establish the Lord's Supper for his church going forward. And he's about to give them a new command. And this whole section is long in John, and John focuses on a a very different sort of... I mean, you, you see some of the same things covered, but John... Is just a very different gospel all through than the rest of the gospels. And so um, he really has a focus on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has this intimate relationship, loving relationship with his Father. And, and so John returns over and over again to that theme of Jesus loving intimate relationship with his father and his perfect obedience to his father. And he uses that as a central part of his message to us, you know, as we read this gospel, this good news that he wrote down, that he recorded for us. His goal in it is that we would believe and that believing we would have life in his name. The name of Jesus. And so now here we enter into the last days of Jesus' life, and John spends a long time covering what Jesus said and taught to his disciples in these last few hours. But first, before Jesus can establish the Lord's Supper before he can give this new command. He has a nasty mess to deal with. And that nasty mess is Judas. Judas Iscariot is about to betray him, and he's still there at the table with them. In fact, just before this, passage in verse 19 or 20, Jesus told his disciples that he was telling them beforehand so that they will believe. And this, of course, is as opposed to having their faith shaken by the fact that there is a Judas among them, that there is a traitor, a betrayer within the very smallest group, the twelve, that Jesus had specifically chosen to be his disciples. And so as we go through our text today, I want you to pay attention to uh, the differences between the people. You've got all of the disciples there, but Judas, Peter, and John stand out 
in the passage that, that John records for us. Judas and Peter and John. Judas, of course, is Jesus' betrayer. Peter is the man's man that we like to think of as an idiot. And John is the one who wrote this book. John was also the youngest disciple. And probably most important of all, he was the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, of course, the moment I say that, some of you are offended, right? Because didn't Jesus love all his disciples? And doesn't Jesus love me? I've been singing that since I was a little kid. <clears throat> and the answer, of course, is yes. Jesus did love all his disciples, including Judas. You see that love extended even in this passage that we're going to read. But there is a unique way, and I want you just to read with your eyes open as we, as we go through this passage. See that love between Jesus and John, and we're really going to be comparing and contrasting these three men to see what we can learn from each of them. So please stand for the reading of God's Word from John 13, beginning in verse 21. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, Tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, 
if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Judas, Judas is who we don't want to be, right? I mean, you read that and you hear Jesus saying to him, what you do, do quickly. And it's like, you know, when you're watching a movie and the doom music starts, and it's just like this, you know what's coming. Well, we know what's coming. We know the story, and it's, it's, this, it's these words that are filled with such depth of meaning. There's so much that's communicated through them, right? They're so filled with doom, that which you do, do quickly. And if you know what he's going to do, it's just, it's just awful hearing those words, and yet, in the moment, in that room, the disciples, it says, had no idea what Jesus was referring to. And they didn't see it as this, like, this statement that was so deep and and meaningful and, right? They just thought he was talking about going and buying, hurry up, go buy that stuff, or, or hurry up, go give the money to the poor. I really want you to enter into that, that time and not be sitting reading this as a, uh, as a movie script. Okay? Um, There is great import in those words. And we ought, to, we ought to see it knowing what's coming. But I want you to think about being there that night. Because there's a lot of things that happen as we go through this um, as we go through these next few chapters and as you read the account uh, of Judas betraying him and, and as you go into the other Gospels, there, you try to put everything together, it, it can start to get confusing fast. And what I want you to remember to start out with is that Judas is a man who really is rejecting the work of Christ. 
Judas is a man who is actively rejecting the work of Christ. He's rejecting the work of Christ in himself. He's rejecting the work of Christ in having chosen him to be a disciple, an apostle. He's rejecting the work that Christ is seeking to do. He's rejecting all of Christ's work by turning against him and betraying him. There isn't a there isn't a halfway lover of Christ, halfway hater of Christ in Judas, right? If you look in our passage and you look at the section where Jesus speaks of the glory of the Father and the Father being glorified in him and him receiving glory from the Father. Again, you think about Judas. Judas is refusing to glorify Jesus. And in, in that refusal, he is also refusing to glorify the Father. God. And yet, in spite of all of this that makes clear really how terrible Judas is, right? He blends in so perfectly with the other disciples that after looking around at each other, after Jesus says somebody is going to betray him, they can't tell that it's Judas. Do you follow? I just got done saying, you know, Judas does not give any glory to Jesus. He does not give any glory to God the Father. He rejects in its entirety what Jesus is doing, both in himself and in other people. And yet the other disciples, having looked at each other, each one of them, They can't tell that it's him. See that in verse 22. And so, what happens? Well, each one of them there begins to wonder whether it might not be himself. In other words, they looked around. Thomas looked at Peter. Peter looked at Thomas. Judas looked at Matthew, and Matthew looked at John. They're all, you, you guys, you've got to be there. You've got to understand. They're all sitting there. They're partaking in a meal together. They're in close quarters. They're looking each other in the eye. And in Matthew 26, 22, we read, being deeply grieved they each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. You don't ask that kind of question if you look around and you're like, Oh, well, obviously it's Judas. Right? You look around and you see Apostle of Jesus Christ, Apostle of Jesus Christ, Apostle of Jesus Christ, Apostle of Jesus Christ, Apostle of Jesus Christ. You look around the table, right? And you're thinking, 
none of these men could do this. Well, if none of them could do it, then I would have to include myself as one of them. None of us could do it, but Jesus is always right. Jesus is always right, and so they know one of them is going to do it in spite of their looking around and thinking impossible. Well, that's when the fear sets in, and they ask, surely, please, not I, don't let it be me. As a matter of fact, we see in verse 29 that They have no idea, even as Judas leaves, that he was the traitor among them. Some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things that we have needed for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. That's right as he went out. And yet Satan has entered into him. Satan has entered into him. Now, there's a, couple of, there's a couple of things that you could do with that phrase. And I want to warn you against one of them in particular. Today, uh, the moment you read it, most people are just dismissive of the spiritual realm, and so they say, Well, that might have been some, that, that must probably just mean, you know, if they claim to be Christians at all, they may say something along the lines of, well, that's a, you know, that's a, a metaphor for the spirit of, uh, you know, accusation and, and attack that, uh, that developed within him. And so he became, he became, you know, an accuser within himself. We're, we're, we're living in a culture that, where, oddly enough, Satan thinks that he can make good progress by convincing everybody that he doesn't exist, right? Satan is real. Satan had entered into Judas. And yet there's another error that we can easily fall into in looking at Judas is helpful in, in avoiding this kind of error. I had a friend who was going through a nasty divorce, and he kept asking me about whether the terribly sinful behavior of his wife might not be caused by demonic influence. Well, it was very wicked. And if you read the Bible, you see that Demonic influences everywhere, right? This is not something that is uncommon in Jesus' ministry to be coming across people who are demon-possessed and to be casting out those demons. And when we read of the church's work, we read that we are not fighting against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, world forces of this present darkness, right? Well, 
This is a spiritual reality that exists, that, that we are engaged in battle as Christ's church with Satan and his forces, with his, against, against his attacks, against his defenses, against his strategies. We have been given armor and weapons as the body of Christ and the promise of victory, right? So Satan is very real. Demonic influences and forces are very real. And so when somebody asks, you know, could there be some demonic influence, I'll say, well, yes. Yes, there could be. And on the, you know, at the most basic level, we can just say that, you know, all of the, all of the wicked and evil behavior that we see in this world is certainly influenced demonically. That, that Satan is pushing for people to be evil, to do wicked things. Seeking to, to, to wield whatever influence he can to accomplish the corruption of mankind. So in that sense, no doubt, all wickedness is, is demonically influenced. But generally, when we start asking whether something is demonically influenced, what we're doing is we are looking for a scapegoat. We're looking for a way of saying, well, it's not really that person's fault that they're doing what they're doing. Do you understand? You're looking for a, an explanation of how could this person do such an evil thing and you can't believe that it's something that would just come out of their heart. And so there's got to be some sort of ultimate evil force at work that you can blame so that you don't have to so that you don't have to look the reality of man's sinful nature right in the face. You want it to be sort of a the, the, the sin that's coming from people, you want to just sort of be a pale reflection of the ultimate evil that is coming off of some other body. And then you can just be like, well, you know, they were under the influence. And we don't just do this with demonic influence, right? I use this now as a segue into all kinds of other things that we give as excuses for the behavior of people who are giving themselves to terrible sin and that we want to excuse in various ways such that it's not really their fault. Well, he doesn't know any better. And so his 
upbringing is at fault, society is at fault, the schools that he was in are at fault, his parents are at fault, his older sister, his aunt, his uncle, his grandparents, his church, whatever. What he doesn't know any better doesn't actually help us, is my point. Because the moment you say he doesn't know any better, all you do is you, you shove that sin back a level and you, you paint it onto the wall behind him. And that wall is everybody else in the world, right, who should have been instructing him so that he knew better. It doesn't really help, does it? Because the moment you do that, then you've got to say, well, did they know enough to teach him? And you can't, just in, you can't just infinitely say, well, yeah, he should have done that, but he didn't know any better, she didn't know any better. Well, what about their parents? What about their grandparents? What about their great-great-grandparents? And on and on and on, right? You've got this... It, it can't go on indefinitely. The buck has to stop somewhere, right? And with Judas, the thing that's helpful about Judas is that I think generally speaking, we don't have too much of a problem just saying the buck stops there. Judas is the bad guy, right? And so you can just say, yeah, it's Judas. Judas was the bad guy. And then you get this, Satan entered him and and the moment you actually start thinking about Judas as one of the disciples instead of the bad guy, you're just going to run into this same problem. You're going to run into the same temptation. What you're going to do is you're going to start to feel bad for Judas. Really. It was interesting how many of the commentators that I read saw our temptation here in this passage was to feel bad for Judas. That may seem crazy to all of you at at the outset, but unless we can deal with it in Judas, we're not going to be able to deal with it in our own lives. You know, it's not just he didn't know any better that we like to blame as the, the problem that somebody has. It's also... Uh, you know, it could be demonic today. That's not very common. But like I said, occasionally somebody wants to just pass it off, you know, say, well, maybe it's just demonic influence on them, right? Other times it may be, well, he didn't know what he was doing, whether that was because he was on drugs or whether he was under the influence of alcohol or um, simply because his mental capacity is diminished and so he didn't truly understand the extent to what he was doing and the harm that he was causing. And yet our responsibility still remains for our sins, right? Do we believe in the sinful heart of man or do we seek to blame it on someone or something else? Jesus tells Judas to do it quickly. And that's, that's particularly the point at which the commentators 
go off, and, and sermons from old men in the faith, they go off and they explain that this does not make Jesus culpable for Judas' sin. Do you see that? Do you see how do you see why we need to be reminded of that? What we want is we want to see Judas as sort of totally other. This this person that's not really like us. That's just you know, the evil. And so when you've got the evil, then you don't have to have any worry about being like him. But what were all of the other disciples doing? They were looking around and they were looking at Judas and at one another and at themselves and they're like, this is us. We are the same. All of us here. And so if we can't blame the otherness of Judas, and we can't blame Satan as somehow just being in control of Judas, then what we're going to be tempted to do is to blame Jesus for how he forced Judas to do this evil thing. You're going to work your way back. You're going to say, God is sovereign. You're even going to say, well, Jesus chose Judas. He shouldn't have chosen somebody who was going to respond that way to his love by denying him, by betraying him. And the reason you're going to be tempted to do this is because you're seeing your own sin in your own life and you're going to want to look for a justification for why you're doing what you're doing as you sin. But Jesus loved Judas tenderly, even knowing from the beginning that Judas was going to betray him, even as that betrayal became more and more imminent, as it it got closer and closer to happening, even as he began to plan it, even as he had the talk with the chief priests about betraying Jesus, even as he was determined to finish his wicked deed, Jesus gave him a piece of bread dipped, a final offer of love and goodwill. That's what that is. When, when Heidi and I were in Ethiopia, one of the things you had to learn culturally was that It's an act of love and respect and honor for somebody to take food in their hand and to feed it to you, put it in your mouth. This is a cultural thing, and it's very sort of Mideast in its in its uh, in its feel. Of course, Ethiopia isn't isn't Mideast, but uh, food and and honor and caring for one another, this is a very common cultural thing. This was a a thing of honor for Jesus to go ahead and serve Judas in this way. 
So was Jesus being cynical by doing that? He uses it as a sign to John. John asks him, who, who is it, Lord? Jesus says, the one who I give the dipped piece of bread to, and then he gives it to Judas. But it's not just a sign, you understand? I mean, we look at it, and we don't understand anything about the honor of being at the table with Jesus, much less him being willing to give us a piece of bread, right? But this is Jesus offering Judas not just bread, but offering him continually his love. It's a last call to repentance. It's a last call to embrace his love. And so we cannot be, we must not be like Judas. We cannot reject the peace that is offered through the dipped bread. Now in this particular... Eating the bread means nothing. Do you understand that? Judas does not somehow, by eating, accept the love that Jesus offered in the dipped bread. Do you, do you get that? Even in his eating of it, even in his accepting of that loving gesture, he is being hypocritical. This is so important for us to understand. Being present among the disciples doesn't mean anything. That's the way Calvin puts it. He says, uh, we see Judas sitting amongst the others and yet condemned by the mouth of the judge. In no respect better is the condition of those who hold a place among the children of God. Calvin, on the record, is not federal vision if you know what that means. <laughs> In no respect better. Really? None at all? Well, of course, Calvin isn't saying that there is no benefit to being there, but he's saying in its nature there is no guarantee of there being any good thing for you in being there. The very act of being there does not make any difference in and of itself. Similarly, of course, with baptism. Similarly with the Lord's Supper. If eating the bread means nothing, then what are we to learn from Judas? Well, what we're to learn is to not be that hypocrite. And I don't mean by that that what you're to do is if you don't believe in Jesus that you're just supposed to, you know, be honest and go out and and betray him. That you're just supposed to be honest and... uh, 
and go ahead and live and do whatever you want. Go out and start sinning in every way that strikes your fancy. Not at all. When I say don't be a hypocrite, I mean accept the bread that Christ offers and the love that it is extended with. The love that causes the offer in the first place. And this is where we come to Peter and John. Although the disciples start out fearful, as we've seen, could it be me? Is it? Surely. Please not. Me. Peter changes his tune after being told that he's not the one. First, let me read, let me read another quote from Calvin. Uh, he says that Christ appears to be somewhat unkind in inflicting this torture for a time on those who are innocent. When he says to them, one of you is going to betray me, and he doesn't say who it is, and there's 11 men there who aren't going to do it and who are innocent, and he leaves them in this agony of wondering who it is and could it be them, right? And Calvin says that he appears somewhat unkind for torturing them in that way. As he, but he says, yet anxiety of this kind was profitable to them. Christ did them no injury. It is proper that when the children of God have heard the sentence of the ungodly, they should themselves feel uneasiness so that they may sift themselves and guard against hypocrisy. And that's what I'm calling you to, to guard against hypocrisy in yourself, that you would not, for instance, come to this meal after I preach, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper, that you don't come to that meal pretending to receive the love of Christ, but actually being his enemy. Calvin says this gives us an opportunity of examining ourselves and our life. The very fact of being warned that there are those who will betray Jesus. So if you enter back into the scenario, if, you, if, you, if you're there at that meal, you, you know that the disciples have looked around at each other, been unable to figure out by looking who it is. Then they begin asking Jesus one at a time, is it, is it me? And it's clear that this is done in a, uh, in a way that it's not, they're not all sitting around the table quietly and one at a time going, Jesus, is it me? And Jesus going, no, it's not you, Matthew. No, it's not you, Peter. And finally they get to Judas and Judas goes, is it me? Right? And, and Jesus says, again, this isn't recorded in our text, but, Jesus, but each of them does ask, and ultimately Judas is included in asking. And Jesus says, it is as you say. You have said it. But 
But you can imagine a meal where this is taking place, where the, the subtle kinds of questions are being asked of one another. The conversations are going on back and forth. There's 12 people around the table, and one at a time, one of them will catch Jesus' eye and be like, And Jesus, no. That's all it takes to ask the question, right? Point at yourself. Shrug your shoulders. And all Jesus has to do is an imperceptible shake of his head while looking you in the eye. And thus it is that they end up, at the end, all having been assured by Christ that it's not themselves, and yet still nobody having any idea who it is, except for John, who asks Jesus directly, who is it then? And again, Peter is the one who instructs him to do this. Peter says, looks at John, and John is lying there on Jesus, in his bosom. He's lying on his chest. Not how we eat meals, is it? Well, the moment you're on floors, on cushions, it's a different experience. If you've never done that, try it somewhere. There's restaurants that will give you part of it. You'll feel uncomfortable. But Jesus and John had a special relationship. Peter's much older, uh, much more uh, commanding in his presence than John. He tells John what to do. Young man, you're right there with Jesus. Ask him. But again, he's done in such a way that not everybody there knows that Peter has told him. Not everybody knows that John has asked, who is it? And not not everybody hears the answer. That's how they're left just still in the dark about who it is and who Judas is. So Peter and all the disciples start out fearful, but the moment Jesus gives Peter the word, no. Then Peter changes his tune, and he becomes so confident. Even claiming that he will die for Christ. But what's he confident of? He's confident of his own Love for Christ. Do you see that? He says, why can't I go with you? I love you enough to die for you. He's overconfident of his own love for Christ, of his own devotion to Jesus. Jesus is patient with Peter. But he doesn't let him maintain a false belief in his own strength and goodness. How many times do you, recognizing the evil of the sin that you have committed, resolve against committing that sin any further and start down this path with Peter? Well, I know I was just I know I was just doing this, 
wicked thing. I know I was just wondering whether I was going to be the one to betray you, but since I know that I'm a Christian, since I know now that, you know, I remember that I'm not supposed to be doing this, now I'm never going to do that again. I love, I love you enough to stop this. I, I, I could die for Jesus. Jesus says to Peter, you will. But first you're going to deny me three times. And Peter falls into that sin, just as Jesus has said. And how many times is that it that way for us? That we seek to fight our sin in our own strength, and by God's grace, he lets us fall right back into it. And so if we shouldn't be like Judas, then let's not be like Peter either. Peter is confident in his own love for Christ. John rests on Christ's love for him. Now, Christ's love is offered in communion, right? But that is not what makes John or Peter or any of the other disciples safe. So far as they know, the traitor is still with them while they proceed to communion. In other words, they don't receive their confidence from the fact that Christ offers them bread and wine and institutes this supper. They don't receive their confidence from partaking in it. And so we cannot rely on the fact that we take communion as evidence of anything having been done in or for us. We can only look to the love that is demonstrated in that meal. That's where our confidence has to be. And of course, if it doesn't make sense to rely on communion for yourself as proof of anything, then it makes even less sense to rely on communion as the thing that, you, that, you're, that makes you convinced that somebody else is a Christian, right? What does the fact that somebody's been baptized prove? Nothing. What does, what does the fact that they take communion Prove? Does it prove that they have not apostated yet? No. It doesn't prove that. What it proves is that God offers his love to his people. And that's our hope. And that's our hope in this meal. John takes this message. We see from 
the beginning of this chapter where it says that Jesus, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Jesus takes this theme of, of love, and in this passage where Jesus says, little children, it's the only place in the Gospels where it's recorded, that those words, little children. And yet, John, when he writes his letters, uses it all the time, my little children. And what he's doing is he's demonstrating his, his love for the people that he's writing to. And he makes it the theme of his life and his letters. We'll talk about the new command that Jesus gives. As time permits, another day. <clears throat> but those whom Christ loves are going to be like John, loving one another. Relying on the love that Jesus Christ has for them. As it is offered in the sacraments, yes. (laughs) But not relying on the sacraments. Let's go to him in prayer.